Boy, I, I just want to say that um, having, I've never preached through 1 Corinthians, so this is a blessing for me because this is the first time I've seen this co the cohesiveness of, the, of this letter, how it's all woven together and it's all kind of directed towards one thing. And I love how I'm st starting to understand the connection between 12, 13, 14, and 15. And we'll, I'll talk about that probably later as we get up to 15. But in chapter 12, um, Paul was exhorting the church in Corinth to consider all the gifts of the Spirit to really be equal, not to pride yourself over someone else because you have a different gift. Every gift is valuable. Every gift is important. Every gift is needed. And you're not special because you have this gift or that gift. You're blessed, just like everyone else in the congregation. And we need uh, supernatural gifts, but we equally need spirit-empowered gifts like service and generosity. In fact, we probably need those gifts as much or more. And we saw how that word gifts, which in Greek is charisma, is also used of salvation, of marriage, of abstinence, um, and so we see it used in many different ways, not just what we think of today, uh, charismatic called the gifts of the spirit, because the gifts include many things. So um, this means it has a much wider use than commonly thought of when we talk about gifts of the spirit. So after uh, Paul stressed that comparison with the parts of the human body being like the different gifts, not everyone's an eye, not everyone's an ear, but we all, need those parts and they all have to work together in unity um, after that now he he went into the beginning of chapter 13 saying but you know I'm going to show you a more excellent way yeah there you've got these gifts and you're good at expressing these gifts and you're you know you 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 have this gift of knowledge and it's all good but remember we're all even we're all equal in Christ but I want to show you something even more excellent. And then we hit chapter 13. And the first three verses we went over two weeks ago in chapter 13 were saying, it doesn't matter if you can speak the language of angels. If you don't have love, you're just a, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. And it doesn't matter what your gifts are. If you even have faith that can move a mountain, if it's not expressed with agape love, the love of God, that love that doesn't expect anything in return, not a wow, you're special, or a, or a oh, you've got insights, or none of that. If it's not expressed in that agape love, you are nothing. Whoa, that's pretty severe. Paul was really getting into their pride and the problem that the church in Corinth was having. He, then he goes on to say, even, even if you give your body to be burned, if you give away everything you have and let your body be burned as a martyr, it doesn't mean anything and you know, don't gain anything if you don't have agape love. And now we come to verses four to seven, which are the biblical de definition of what is agape. We talked about the four kinds of love. But this one's this love is different. It's not the kind of love that that uh, we often think of in English as we say love. It's so much greater. It's it's well, God is love. And so, what is it? 
Paul defines it in our passage for today. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read these verses? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. You know, this passage is often used in wedding vows, right? And, and appropriately so, because uh, marriage is the supreme test of agape, right? Because Ephesians chapter 5 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Agape love. He laid down his life for her. That's how. However, Paul's describing more than just a marriage relationship here in this passage. He's telling us that this should be the definition of normal Christian behavior. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage as I was preparing it, I was like, ow. Because it just cut me to the core. It was that sword of the spirit that divided between soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. As the first fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, agape demonstrates to the world that our union with Christ is authentic. That's, that's what we just sang about. They'll know we're Christians by our love. By this will all, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's John 13, 35. So let us now carefully examine what the apostle tells us regarding how this love is to be manifest in our daily lives. It's really a measure of how faithfully we are walking in the spirit. So the first one is love is patient. Are you patient? I tell you, when I, when I uh, got to this point, I, real, I just flash back on the day before when I was impatient and unkind. I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything about it, but it was in my mind. And you know what Jesus says about when you think about it? It's, a, it's like doing it. I didn't bring my thoughts under submission of the Holy Spirit. And I allowed those unkind thoughts uh, to linger in my mind. So let this declaration that love is patient and love is kind, and therefore this is God. God is love. God is patient and kind, and we should reflect that to the world. So let that declaration shine a light into your hearts and minds. Love is patient and kind. Am I? So what do I do about it? And 
there's a wonderful verse that's going to help you through this. At least it helped me as I went through this passage and really meditated on it. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So please keep that in mind as we go through it. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm just telling you how convicted I am personally as I studied this passage. And we should all be convicted of how far we have to go to truly be ambassadors of Christ, to truly be examples of that kind of love. That's what he's calling us to be to the world. That's what men and women should be in their marriages. I confess that that day before, I didn't have it, at least in my mind I didn't have it. Thinking that way is sinful enough, and the Spirit convicts me, and so I confess my thought life is often impatient and unkind, and I repent, which means I want with all my heart for the Spirit to help me go a different direction next time. When that point of irritation comes up, I want to cry out to God, Lord, Help me walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Help me demonstrate, exhibit your love. Let your love flow through me. I can't do it. I've tried and tried. You can't do it. You need the God, God's love to flow through you. I think of how patient and kind God's been to me and am amazed that I can then turn around and be impatient to others. Do you know what I mean? It reminds me of the parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 18 of the man who owned this insurmountable debt and uh, the the one he owed the debt to was gonna throw him in prison and he pleaded and he begged and the man said, okay, okay, I forgive you this one time. And then he goes out and finds somebody that owes him about 10 bucks and has him thrown in jail and when the When the master hears about that, he calls the man back and says, you know what, I changed my mind too. But I've been given that insurmountable amount of debt's been forgiven me, and therefore, I should. Uh, it's, It's incumbent upon me to forgive other people, the little slights and the little things that happen to me. Are we patient with those who won't take our advice? With the idiosyncrasies of others that get on our nerves? With those who don't yet know Christ? With those who don't listen to the other side of the argument? Are you kind to them, even though they get on your nerves? And how about those who keep stumbling into sin, especially those who sin against us? We don't have to enable them, but we do need to be patient and kind. Why? It's not because they deserve it. It's because that's how God has been to us. Amen? It's because that's the prompting of the Holy Spirit within us to be God-like, Christ-like. He'll guide us if we would willingly yield to his Holy Spirit. You know, I was going to preach all the way to the end of the chapter, but when I read verses four to seven, even though I've memorized this chapter, I review it every week, when these these verses just got me with the full force and conviction of the Holy Spirit. So if I know these things, why don't I do them? Right, the scripture says if, 
Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them? Well, I'm asking, why don't I do them? Why don't I demonstrate more love? And it's usually because, I don't know if it's the same with you, but in my case, it's usually because I've justified my behavior in some way, in my mind. I've justified that, oh, I, that God doesn't mind because, and I give some pathetic excuse. Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us. And that means being patient and kind with everyone. We have to come to a place of being intolerant of our old nature when it stamps its little spoiled feet and demands to have its way. We have to exercise the fruit of the spirit that is self-control and say, not today, old spoiled selfish nature. I am a new creation in Christ and I will let his love flow through me. I choose love. And then we shoot off a prayer asking for forgiveness and help and strength for that love to flow, flow through us. The second part of verse 4 says, love does not boast or envy. Paul now turns to defining love by what it is not. If we're letting the love of Christ have his way in us, if our minds are being renewed by the word, and we're walking in love, we will not envy what others have, whether it's a physical thing or a spiritual gift. Rather, we will be thankful that God has blessed another brother or sister with it and encouraged them regarding it. Envy is a sneaky way for the flesh to assert its selfishness. We think something along the lines of, that person doesn't deserve that. I would do a much better job with it. God should have given it to me as if we could tell God what he should have done. That's really ingratitude toward God and a lack of love towards our brother and sister. We elevate ourselves instead of elevating them. We're second guessing God who gave them what they have. And boasting is akin to envy in that it declares I deserve this and don't I do a fine job with it. We should have the exact opposite attitude. Why is God so gracious to give me this thing or ability? May he help me use it for his glory and acknowledge it is from his generosity and grace to an undeserving soul. And the third part of verse four in the beginning of five, it's not rude or arrogant. Arrogance and rudeness go together. To be arrogant often results in being rude. Arrogance is the prideful opinion that we're better than someone else. It tempts us all at one time or another. We look at someone and we see their faults and we think that we could never fall for such a pathetic condition. I like the adage, except for the grace of God, there go I. And that's what we should be saying. But instead, we're often like the Pharisee praying in the temple. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. Oh, Lord. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. And even as we read these verses that reveal the qualities of love, our pride can leave us just like that Pharisee rejecting conviction. 
If we let the Holy Spirit examine our hearts, we will be more like the one whose prayer was heard and who went home justified before God. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pride is the lifeblood of the old nature. It demonstrates its ugliness in rude expressions that put others down as if somehow they are less important or less valuable. Every person was made in the image of God. Every person has the intrinsic worth that Christ died to redeem. Humility is a work of the Holy Spirit revealing God to us. The clearer we see the holiness of God, the humbler we will be as we realize how far short we fall from his glory. And yet how gracious he's been to sinners like us. Pride sometimes comes from comparing ourselves with others. We think we behave better than they do. We think we're more generous than they are. And this verse that uh, comes from the Gospel of Luke should deal with that problem in us. It's from Luke 17, verse 10. So also you, when you've done all that you were com commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done that which is our duty to do. Who has ever done all that God commanded them to do? Even if we could, we would still have to say that we've only done what was our duty. And why is that? It's because everything that we have, our life, our talents, our ability, our wealth, our health, it all came from God. Everything. So what do we owe him? Everything. Amen. After all, what he asks of us is always for our good. That mindset will help us avoid an arrogant and rude attitude when we meet others less fortunate in any way. It should cause us to thank God for his mercy on us and consider how we might help that person. Second part of verse 5, it does not un insist on its own way. Oh boy, does this speak to marriages. Amen, husbands and wives? Who among us has never insisted on having their way? And marriage is a testing ground for this one. Most of our struggles are over who will be most insistent to have their own way. But it raises its ugly head in churches as well. Regarding everything from paint color to communion juice. Lord, please help us prefer others above ourselves. I thank God I learned a long time ago to choose my battles wisely and make sure it's a hill worth dying on. Amen? That's a, a great standard to go by. Everything else is just a waste of time. You can have your way, but still, I find my old nature being impatient with others who insist on their way after a reasoned argument. Ha! That's the old nature weaseling its way in again. And if it can't find one way, it's going to try another. I would encourage you that if you're struggling with this one, <clears throat> with a clash of wills, who's going to have their way, whether it's a housemate or, or uh, your spouse or an employee, 
um, or, or just your fellow Christian to think how important the issue really is in the light of eternity. Chances are you'll come to the conclusion it isn't worth a fight. So yield to the Holy Spirit and you'll find sometimes the other person's way actually turns out better than what you were planning. And it really was not worth fighting over. Yield to the Holy Spirit and you'll enjoy missing the battle of the wills. There comes a time when we must stand our ground on moral issues, but we can do so with love and understanding of the other person's perspective. We can try to find a compromise acceptable to both parties, but that's not always possible when it comes on things that are clear in scripture. We can agree to disagree peaceably. Just don't make trivial matters the issue. And the third part of verse five, it's not irritable or resentful. If we don't get our way, we're irritated by it to the point of losing our peace sometimes. Are we resentful toward the person? That's another way the flesh tries to gain a foothold. The spirit will have us forgive and go on. I like the Fido principle, forgive it and drive on. Sometimes we need to avoid people who consistently abuse our generosity or kindness to keep from enabling them. But we should be sure we don't avoid them because we've become impatient or resentful. That's a different matter. The way to know the difference is to ask yourself if the way forward is out of love for them. I have a hard time with this one. I sometimes want to avoid someone for my sake not theirs. I don't want to give my time to what seems to be a waste of time, but that is impatient and it's often resentful. It isn't acting in love. And when I realize that I can change my attitude, humble myself and share in love and hope that God will work through me for their good. How do we experience more of God's love for others? I think we need to ask God for his heart for them. How does God feel about that? God, will you share with me how you feel about that person? That will transform your attitude. Hear what they're going through. Listen to them. Ask God for genuine concern for them and pray for them. Most of us are so wrapped up in our own concerns, we neglect to consider the concerns and pains in others' lives. We think we have enough to deal with, but that's because we aren't trusting the Lord as we should for our health or our finances or our relational struggles. If we really cast our burdens on the Lord, then we begin to love others enough to care about what they're going through. But you have to cast your burden on the Lord first. Verse six, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love never accepts wrongdoing. Even if one might benefit from it, love rejoices in truth prevailing. It was wrong for the wealthy Corinthian believers to leave the poor believers in, in Corinth the communion scraps. It was unloving. It was wrong to elevate oneself in the church above others because of their special gift. The truth is each one is needed and everyone is valuable. And while some gifts may be more helpful for building up the body, all the gifts, 
the gifts from God are necessary for the health of the whole church. That's the truth. Paul addresses stealing in his letter to the Ephesians. Apparently some thought to meet their own needs it was okay to steal from the wealthy. We can't justify wrongdoing. We must cling to the truth, which is God's word. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It's in the word that we find what is righteous and what is evil. Verse 7, love bears all things. Paul returns now to what love does. We, we were looking at what love doesn't do. Now we're looking back again as we started with what love does. Love bears up under whatever circumstances it faces. And this word bears is a military term in Greek for enduring an assault. It's when, when you come under assault and you maintain your ground and you hold your position. It's willing to endure because the love of God is patient and kind. It bears with that person who annoys you or who insults insults you or insists on their way, who, who puts you down or ignores you. It bears with the failings of the weak instead of pleasing ourselves. You know, uh, this expression, uh, you've probably heard it many times, but it's so true. Hurting people hurt people. If someone's hurting you, it's probably because they're really hurting. And, and when you answer with love, often it completely disarms them. I, I've seen people just go from... <laughs> all out screaming at me to just stunned because of my response. One time, I'll share one of them with you. One time, someone was screaming at me in, in front of a grocery store about some, some uh, a business thing I was considering, and, and they didn't like the fact that it could happen, that it could come to pass, so they were screaming at me and yelling at me, and, and I, and then all of a sudden they stopped and said, why are you smiling? And I said, because I have the joy of the Lord and the peace of Jesus. And they just, they didn't know what to say. They just were stunned. And it completely de-escalated the whole thing because they didn't know what to do. How do you follow that? It bears with the person who thinks they have a gift they don't really have with the tenant that's late in paying their rent or the landlord who's picky, picking on you because all the time or with the homeowners association. How about that one? That demands you do this or that. It bears up under the assault. We can see an overlap in these defining qualities of love, to bear all things is being patient with others, not insisting on our way, not being rude or resentful or irritable. That's love, God's kind of love. And you know what? If you have it, it'll reduce your blood pressure too. We need a heavenly perspective to do it though. We must realize that love is more important than these little annoyances that so often pull us out of the spirit and into the flesh. And, and as we go on through this passage, um, it's going to be emphasizing next week how, how short-term so many things are, how temporary things are, including the gifts of the spirit. 
but how eternal love is. If we want to live for what's lasting, it's love. And all these other things will pass away. All the little things that annoy us. I like to say, this thing that's gotten you so worked up today, you won't remember six months from now. If I said, you remember back on, on April? Uh, no, wait. What is this? May. What's the date? July the 12th, right? July the 12th? 10th? 10th? July. Remember back on July? Thank you. Yeah, I've been on vacation. I got an excuse. Remember back on July the 10th, that thing you were all worked up? You'll say, what are you talking about? Right? Right? Try it sometime. Mark it on your calendar or in your journal or something and say, oh, I'm so angry about this thing. And then three, three months later, just thumb back through your journal and go, don't write what the thing was and go back to it. I bet you you won't remember what it was. We need that heavenly perspective of what lasts. Love believes all things. That doesn't mean that we believe everything we hear, but rather that we believe the word of God in every matter. We believe that sowing to the spirit reaps life and peace. We believe that living a life of service can be joyful and rewarding and that selfishness only makes us lonely and miserable. We believe to gain our life, we must lay it down in service to the one who laid down his life for us. And we believe Jesus is coming again and that he will reward everyone for what they've done. We believe he's redeemed our souls and made us righteous before God. It's love for God and his word that causes us to believe all these things. We love him because he first loved us. We believe all these things because the grace of God opened our eyes to the truth of his word and the love that he has for us. And when we believe all these things, our lives are transformed into lives of love, the love of God. Third part of verse seven, hopes all things. Love hopes all things declared to us in the word, all the promises of God. It's that hope that helps us bear all things. It bolsters our patience. It strengthens our belief. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. My greatest hope is seeing Jesus face to face. I'm assured of that hope because of what he's done for us. And when that takes place, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Amen. Hallelujah. That, that should be a huge hallelujah. Christians have the greatest hope, and it's a hope based on actual history and a declaration of the one who cannot lie. It's based on the unchanging word of God, and that's why it is a sure hope. And if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it with patience. Love is patient, like a bride waiting for her wedding, anticipating, but waiting. And finally, love endures all things. While we are waiting for that glorious day when he calls us home, love enables us to endure all things. And sometimes that's a lot. But love can see us through. It reminds me of soldiers who were 
engaged before they went off to war. They endured the hardship of battle, sleeping in the rain, marching for long hours. Occasionally, they pull out a picture of their bride-to-be, waiting, anticipating, enduring. And they endured everything because they had a destination and an expected end. They could see past it all because they knew the day was coming if they would just endure for the sake of love. And sometimes life in this fallen world seems like a battle zone. Sometimes it is really a spiritual battle zone. And it seems like we would be hard-pressed to endure another day. Paul mentions that in the second letter to the Corinthians. He says, we, we felt hopeless. We felt as if we're, our, our lives were ending. But that's when we pull out our picture painted for us in the words of Scripture. We read of the heavenly city, the new heaven, and the new earth. We read of God who loves us and gave himself for us and we endure, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is love. The first fruit of the Spirit. It's patient. It's kind. It's without envy or boasting. Not arrogant or rude. Not insisting on our own way not irritable or resentful, not rejoicing in wrong, but rejoicing in truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. By the grace of God, may we allow the Spirit to express this fruit of agape agape love in all its fullness in our lives as we wholeheartedly cooperate with the only true God whose eternal nature is agape. Amen? Amen.